Well, welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be continuing our look at the letters of, of the U.S.'s third president, Thomas Jefferson. Um, we've, we've looked at uh, the letters starting from 1760 up until 1799. So in this episode, we'll be looking at the letters Jefferson wrote um, from from 1800 to 1806. So we'll be covering his presidency and the, the buildup to his, his presidency. We saw in the last episode how Jefferson was really getting more politicized and more anxious and more optimistic about the future of America as his opposition to the Federalist um, you know, government that he was a part of as vice president grew and he became more and more confident of a change coming in America and that change would be manifest in his his election. Of course, as we learn in our history, uh, coming in wanting that did not necessarily mean that it was going to happen. So uh, or, or not everything would be smooth. Right. So you come in with the best intentions and the, the opposite may happen. And, and that's certainly the case with uh, the, the Jefferson Madison years where you want, it's all about peace and free trade and restrained government. And by the end of the Jefferson-Madison years, you have a war fought against Great Britain. You have um, embargoes. You have um, what, you know, government overreach in the Louisiana Purchase. You have, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's not a, a perfect revolution by, by, by any stretch of the imagination. There's a lot of interesting letters in this period of time. Uh, he's, of course, writing as, 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 as president in most of these. Uh, he's not very restrained, though. Um, he, he still says what he thinks. So he's, he doesn't really seem to put on his president cap too much. And, and as we'll see, in like, I think in the next episode and some of the later presidential letters, he almost resents being president. He doesn't seem to really want the job. Um, we also see that he's still very much a polymath. He's still interested in many different fields. He writes about his, you know, the building of the university. He, he's interested in disease. He's interested in, in Eli Whitney's inventions. And I think this is really, for many people, one of the more attractive parts of Thomas Jefferson, you know, is just how much he was engaged in, in the world around him and it's in science and in, in different architecture, poetry, history, all these different things. Um, that said, these letters also have things that, that reinforce the thesis that I've been building up throughout this series is that we really need to be honest and look at Jefferson as, as an imperialist, as someone who did have designs for the continent for, for white people. Uh, he does you know, have certain attitudes towards black people that, that make it almost impossible for him to imagine them being part of, a, of the United States uh, as, a, as a republic. Um, and... And his attitude towards Indians is maybe not so harsh, but he also doesn't see much of a place for traditional Indian cultures in the, in the United States. And of course, this is going to manifest in, in various types of imperial uh, writings, uh, both in, in acts, like the Louisiana Purchase is an imperial act, to be sure, but also, um, you know, his policy towards Indians. Now, as I did in the previous episodes, I want to use this opportunity to kind of go through year by year Jefferson's life in case you're not familiar with it I don't want to you know I don't want to assume you you have all these details you know and who does really unless a Jefferson scholar but um, so we'll just start in 1800 um, so he's already kind of the leader of this Democratic Republican movement or yeah I think it was the Democratic Republicans 
was the name of the, his party, his faction. And he runs for president in 1800 on that. And of course, he wins. And let's just review what elections were like before the 12th Amendment. Each elector to the Electoral College would vote for two people. And this is very much that old style, non-democratic Republican idea that like these, these people would vote for who's best for the country and they would vote first and then second. They wouldn't vote for necessarily, they weren't necessarily pledged to one candidate. And I, th I think they still aren't, right? They, they, once in a while they can vote for someone else. They, they try to. I don't know if it's ever overturned an election, but um, didn't someone like not vote for Trump? If one of the Republican electors didn't vote for Trump last time. But anyways, um, you vote for two. Um, and then the top guy gets president and the, and the guy who has the, the strongest plurality after that becomes vice president. Well, um, but you can't vote for the guy, same guy twice, right? You have to vote for two distinct people. The problem, of course, this didn't imagine parties. And once you have parties, of course, everyone from a party is going to vote for the same two guys. Basically, the president, the guy running for president, the one running for vice president. And this became a... A t you know, this this led to a tie. And um, so at the end of 1800, Jefferson was not officially president-elect, right? It had been sent over to the House of Representatives, which is a lame duck Federalist majority. Um, House of Representatives, of course, they, they fulfill the will of the people, but they, they still try to play some games to try to deny Jefferson the presidency. They fail in these eventually, but it, it was not the new Congress that did this. It was the old lame duck Congress. That, that did it. So that's essentially what happens in, in 1800 is, is the presidential campaign. However, there are a whole bunch of, of interesting letters here. Um, one letter uh, to Joseph Priestley, and he, he writes to him quite a lot in, um, in this period of his life. Dr. Joseph Priestley um, is about the, the, the need for a, a university in Virginia. He's already thinking about this. This is, going to, of course, going to be his great achievement in his retirement, is the creation of the University of Virginia. But he started uh, thinking about this, you know, as early as 1800. And he, he kind of bemoans the fact that College of William and Mary is the only uh, college in, in Virginia and that they need to do more. In fact, he writes up a, a follow-up letter where he makes a really interesting and I think relevant, still relevant kind of defense of the humanities because it's a follow-up letter just a few days later where he says, well, I didn't really talk about the classics. Why didn't I or, or something? And he says, it was not that I think, as some do, that they're useless. I'm of a different opinion. I do not think them essential to an obtaining eminent degree in science, but I think them very useful towards it. I suppose there's a portion of life during which our facilities are ripe enough for this and for nothing more useful. I think the Greeks and Romans have left us the present modes which exist in fine composition. Um, he does say, though, it's a luxury to read like the classics in Latin and Greek, right? Languages are, of course, important, especially if you're not from a country that has the lingua franca. But, you know, studying the classics, how important really is that? Um, but Jefferson says it's 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 kind of what makes life beautiful. It's like the bread and roses idea, and we hear so much about the defense of the humanities these days. People standing up and saying, you know, we got to protect the humanities from budget cuts or from the you know the STEM fields that are trying to dominate the universities, and we need to find some way to argue that the the humanities do what these other fields do better, right? They prepare you for a career better, or they give you skills you need, or something. And I rarely hear in this conversation a defense of just of the pleasure of 
of studying the classics or the pleasure of studying history or the pleasure of studying modern languages or the pleasure of studying literature as valuable, right? If someone goes into sports science, right? Or sports management. I taught at a college that had a big sports management program for a while. If someone goes into sports management, they're never criticized like, well, what you're doing is just trivial stuff for fun, right? You know, I suppose more people don't watch baseball than watch baseball. Um, so it's it's catering. If you become a, a baseball sports medicine, you know, or, or you know, you go into baseball management, you're catering to a minority interest. Uh, of course, more popular than maybe history books, but it's still about pleasure at the end of the day. And no one says that's not a valuable pursuit because the market values that a lot, right? So it's not about pleasure really. It's at the end of the day, it's the, the fields that matter are those that have the power to dominate the field. And, and Jefferson is saying, yes, you don't need it for sciences, but we need it in, in a university and in, in education. Um, all right, moving on from that. Let me know what you think about that issue, though. I'd be curious to know. Uh, in 1800, he writes a letter to John Breckinridge, called the, well, the editor's called the 18th Brumaire, which is talking about Napoleon. And here he presents a pretty optimistic view of, of Napoleon Bonaparte, suggesting that he's going to be a, a defender of uh, French liberty. According to his protestations, he is for liberty, equality, and representative government, and he is more able to keep the nation together and to ride out the storm than any other. End quote. So once again, we find Jefferson defending France right or wrong, despite the fact that it was taking a step away from republicanism and towards monarchy. Um, of course, I think, uh, when does he become emperor? 1803. So I think by then, the Louisiana Purchase was already done. But I think by 1802, when he started getting worried about French presence in the New World, he had, had started to turn on, on Napoleon, at least. Um, the next letter I want to look at is to a guy named Bishop James Madison. And it, it was yeah, January 31st, 1800. And this letter is really fun because it's Jefferson reading. He, he read a book about the Illuminati. Now, I didn't really know the Illuminati was much of a thing in the 18th, late, well, early 19th century. I, mean, I thought it was the Jesuits and the, you know, the Freemasons. He mentions the Freemasons here, too. But I thought those were the real conspiracy, conspiracy theories out there were about the Jesuits and such. But, you know, apparently there was this book about this Illuminati and this guy who, who's founded it, and he's got the book. And, you know, he's not really afraid of these people, but he's, he's just kind of interested in them. And it's a fun little letter uh, that gets into kind of early, early examples of conspiracy theory out there. Um, yeah, there's a, a pretty standard letter to a guy named Gideon Granger. I should look up some of the, a few more of these. Some of them I looked up, and I couldn't find out really who they were. Their names were maybe fairly common. Um, but Gideon Granger's, the letter to Gideon Granger from Monticello in August 13, um, by this point he's definitely running for president. He, he makes a case for um, basically smaller government, smaller central government, states, you know, more power being in state governments. The general government should be small and limited in its, in its power. I've been looking at these letters and I never really see them dealing, dealing with an issue like what would come up in the civil rights movement, right? When states were passing laws that were directly oppressing rights. The 14th Amendment would say eventually that the rights guaranteed by the Constitution for citizens of the federal government apply to the states as well. 
Prior to that, though, that was not clear. So he doesn't seem bothered by this. He, he doesn't think. I think he just doesn't believe state governments closer to the people would be more likely to be oppressive. He assumes that the farther away government is, the more likely it would be oppressive. But that's not the really the, the fact of the matter, right? The, the case in U.S. history is it was often state governments could be more oppressive than the than the federal government in a lot of ways, right? Especially if you're a minority or if you were uh, an Indian or, you know, of course, Indian removal was initiated by the states as well. It wasn't, we, we blame Jackson for that, but he was just building off what the states were, were already doing. So anyways, those are some letters from, from 1800. So anyways, back to the biography. Um, in 1801, the House, uh, uh, you know, elects Jefferson as a bit of a, well, a long process, and there's some backroom dealing trying to flip the election to Burr, I think, Aaron Burr. But eventually this all fails, and Jefferson is, is elected. Um, this is about the time he stopped writing letters to, to John Adams, and this is where their, their friendship really breaks up. Um, now, obviously, he's spending a lot of time in Monticello in, in 1800. He's, he's basically in a kind of quasi-retirement after... I guess he was still vice president, but he's spending a lot of time in Monticello. Uh, because Sally Hemings gave birth to, to Harriet Hemings, another daughter, the same name as the child who died, um, was born in France and died later on in the United States. And once he becomes president, one of his first kind of pressures is to is to declare war against these Barbary pirates. So this peace candidate, this one who wants small government, small military, you know, weak navy, you know, and pay off the national debt. One of his first acts is to is to send troops to to Tripoli. It's going to be like four years before those, that, that campaign is finally ended. Um, and I think even that doesn't fully do away with the, the threat, if you will, of the Barbary Pirates. I'm not even sure how much of a, a threat they were, but, um, you know, there's a book out there like America's First War on Terror, or The Barbary Pirates. I never read it. I just saw it at a bookstore. So um, some people have written about this and thought, thought about the, the significance of this in, in American military history. Um, the letters, of course, are... You know, some of them reflect the energy of this revolution of, of 1800, this this feeling of, of reconciliation, like his inaugural address did this, this kind of we reconcile, but we remain committed to to the foundations of Republican governance. Um, he also writes to, um, oh, that Dr. Joseph Priestley, and he writes him advocating basically that republicanism is going to be tied to this advance of science and I, I think that's kind of an interesting argument that he he thinks there's um some kind of relationship between the republic and, and greater scientific achievements and so he's kind of praising the the direction of science in in america um oh he, he you know he as for the he writes to the minister of france giving him orders there's a couple of letters in here actually about um how how to deal with France. And so the U.S. Minister of France at the time was Robert R. Livingston. And his concern here is free trade. And that's pretty explicit. He, you know, of course, Europe's at war. And the United States don't want to be drawn in these wars. And that's going to be one of Jefferson's overriding concerns throughout his presidency is, is staying out of that whole mess. Um, but he thinks the solution to that is to push for, for as free a trade as possible between them and it, these are kind of diplomatic orders these are 
almost some of this is almost like talking points that um, that he should be prepared to give the French in regards to this this policy. Um, but here's the problem. Um, um, we believe, quoting the letter, we believe that the practice of seizing what is called contraband of war is an abusive practice not founded in natural right. War between two nations cannot diminish the rights of the rest of the world remaining at peace. The doctrine of the rights of the nations remaining quietly under the exercise of moral and social duties are to give way to the convenience of those who prefer plundering and murder one another. It is a monstrous doctrine and ought to yield to the more rational law that the wrongs of two nations endeavor to inflict on each other must not infringe on the rights or convenience of those remaining meaning at peace. And what is contraband by the law of nature? Either everything in which may aid the enemy or nothing. Unquote. So that's that's the policy. Again, the problem is war. It's it's the old debates over you know the do we support the French model of republicanism and revolutionary republicanism or the British model of constitutional monarchy as a kind of our foreign policy buddy. It's giving away to the realities of, of just Europe being in the midst of, of a total war. We got a great little letter here um, to James Monroe. There's a series of letters to James Monroe on various topics um, during, the, during Jefferson's presidency. And one of my favorites is this little note, essentially, where he's basically telling Buchanan, you know, about James, uh, Eli Whitney's changeable, interchangeable parts and his inventions and how innovative he is and he seems to be really interested in these different improvements and we just see another window into Jefferson as this attractive polymath someone you know, who has all these interests is deeply engaged in in various fields and science even when he's president right we're going to see in the next episode that really by he was pretty bored as president too and he seemed to not really want that and it's not surprising then we find him you know expressing this deep interest in all these other other topics um, the next letter, also written in 1801, though, is more troubling, and it's also, also to James Monroe, uh, but it's titled, To the Governor of Virginia. Monroe was governor at the time. It is on the issue of African colonization. And I have no other way of describing this letter other than a, nearly a conspiracy plotting the ethnic cleansing of, of the United States of black people. Um, of course, we know Jefferson's opinion that black people cannot be in this republic it has to be a white republic uh, they're not you know he was a straight-up racist when it came to black people not like Indians who we thought could assimilate into um, and you know white American civilization black people couldn't so the question is where to put them and it, it's it's kind of scary you know um, I don't want to make any comparisons directly to other ethnic cleansings that that did did take place um, but this concern about where to put these people is, is something that other that ethnic cleansings throughout the planet have, have, have had, to, had to deal with. So one offer is like go and take some land from the Indians and give it to make it a black republic somewhere out in the west or in the north. Even so, like maybe the in British territories, so you kind of say take a chunk of Canada. Um, on our northern boundary in a country not occupied by British subjects, but the property of Indian nations. And maybe the British would give it to us, he's, he says. Then he says, well, maybe the West Indies, because, you know, you have Haiti, you know, Saint-Domingue, which is fighting for his independence. They can, they can go there. And finally, he says, as a last resort, we should send them to Africa. Now, obviously, I think Jefferson knows that sending, you know, at this point, what is it, 
600,000 or so black people to to Africa is not going to happen. It's a preposterous proposal, but so are these others, right? Send them all to Haiti to a land they don't know, you know, where people speak a language they don't understand. Or even even sending them out to the West. These, these are all really preposterous ideas. But nonetheless, it's really ominous to see the President of the United States talking with a governor in a, in a state that had a significant, well, I think the largest concentration of slaves, plotting the, the removal of, of a huge chunk of the population. Yeah, it is what it is. All right, um, jumping to 1802. Um, there was a big achievement of the Jefferson presidency in 1802, which was the repeal of the Judiciary Act. This was one of Adams's last acts, and it was something that was a real annoyance for for Jefferson. It had some, you know, it flooded the courts with these um, Federalist judges, which you know made life difficult for Jefferson. Um, so that's going on at home, but. More importantly is for the long-term growth of the United States is France acquires the Spanish territories in Florida and in Louisiana. And this really seems to scare Jefferson. He, he's really he's really worried about the pre, what the presence of the French will do to him there. He, he thinks this will draw the United States into the war, essentially into the war in Europe, you know, in, a, you know, in opposition to France. Right. So this really starts the chain of events that's going to lead to the Louisiana Purchase in, in 1803. There's also the rumors about Sally, which were spread, beginning to be spread by James Callender, about Sally Hemings, um, who he seemed to know that Jefferson had a, you know, had a sexual relationship with one of his slaves going on for quite a while. And um, he started publishing to that. To that effect, um, in 1802, and, and Jefferson is is going to be a, a is apparently a, a fairly firm supporter of freedom of speech throughout his presidency, but um, you know, doesn't mean the press was necessarily friendly to him um, in, in this way. But you know, it's just telling the truth. I don't know how they knew. I don't. I don't know how he had this knowledge, this information. Um, as for letters, there's not that much important here. One is. Uh, kind of a review of Republican achievements to a military officer, which I think is interesting because part of what Jefferson was doing was kind of stripping the army and shrinking it and uh, reducing the cost of government. But he's trying to convince this military officer of the, the how Repu these achievements will be, how what the Republicans are doing is going to be great for the, the military. And going to be great for the republic and everything but the really important one is uh, just the necessity of new orleans right and the fear of the french empire so there's a fairly long letter which is addressed to the was it yeah this is again to robert livingston the u.s minister to france about the the problem of louisiana and we see here really comes down to anxiety that that French positions in Louisiana is going to lead to U.S. intervention in the war, and and the, eventually the, the this territory will become the America, Americas anyways. So this gets added to the need for have free passage to the Mississippi, which is of course the justification for buying the, um, New Orleans. But it becomes kind of tied up into these this greater fear of, of what will happen if. You know, if the French position there is strengthened, that's going to make it almost impossible for the U.S. to stay neutral in, in the war. And that's basically what he writes to the foreign minister or the minister to France. Eventually, though, in the next year, he's going to send James Buchanan 
to to France to work out an agreement to buy buy New Orleans and eventually buys all of Louisiana. Okay, so 1803. 1803, um, of course, uh, James Buchanan is spent to France, as I just said, um, to buy New Orleans. It's also the year that the Marbury versus Madison decision is passed, which, of course, strengthens the judiciary by establishing the principle of judicial review. Jefferson, in these letters, don't, doesn't write anything about those, but it's certainly an um, um, important part of his presidency. Really, what we're going to have is a bunch of letters that, that talk about Louisiana in various ways, whether it's the beginning of recruiting Meriwether Lewis for the expedition to the Pacific to explore this territory, or if it's um, or his concern of the need for a constitutional amendment. Now, there's two ways of reading this. One is Jefferson seems to be honest about his principles, right? That it's not in the power, it's not a constitutional power of the presidency to buy land from another country. Although I think they were buying Indian land, or at least states were buying Indian land, but. He says this wasn't a right, so he need he thought they needed a constitutional amendment to either to, to say the president has the right to do this. I think he was looking for a specific amendment that would actually just justify the Louisiana Purchase directly, specifically, um, or maybe a bro more broadly worded one. But you know that's one way of looking at it. He's just sticking to his principles, but for whatever political reasons, he couldn't get it done. The other is that he is overreaching and he is betraying what. He's doing, he ends up like a Federalist. He ends up doing the stuff the Federalists say. You know, when you look at like the Jefferson-Madison years, you see this kind of shift. And that's Henry Adams' point in his massive history of, of these two presidencies, is that, you know, you do got this shift of the Republican Revolution to essentially a Federalism-white type of, of presidency where you have war and embargoes and, and greater overreaches, you know, internal improvements and all that. So anyways, the Louisiana Purchase is just one of those things that, that you can kind of interpret however you want, I suppose. Um, uh, we got the, in, the in, in terms of the letters, we're given the instructions to Monroe um, in January 1803. Um, but I don't want to say too much more about that. But I do want to talk about two letters he wrote, one to a guy named Benjamin Hawkins and another to William H. Harrison. Uh, about Indian policy and both of them they're written right near each other and both of them talk about the same issue and they they both essentially argue that Indians are taking up too much land with their hunting right and Indians for you know he already we already know he believes Indians would be better off growing food right but here he kind of mixes it up with a land grab like saying well they need all this land now because they're like hunting and and they're you know, if they were to be quote unquote civilized, if they'd become like us, they wouldn't need so much land, which would, of course, open up all this land to settlement. It's framed as kind of benevolence, like we want these people to be citizens. We want to bring them into the republic. But at the end of the day, it's just another land grab. It's just another you know, like obsession with with clearing this land for for white people one way or another. I mean, even when that letter where he writes about where do we put the black people concerned, the ethnic cleansing letter. He's not too keen on sending him out west because I think he sees in the future that is like part of this white republic. That's why he really liked the idea of sending them to Haiti. Um, also in this, this year, he wrote a letter to, to Benjamin Rush. And this one's a lot of fun. This is, I think it's the first letter he wrote to Benjamin Rush that's collected in this, this particular anthology. It's about the morality of Jesus, and it's a very interesting historical analysis of Jefferson. And he's basically in a debate with the, uh, Priestley, that, that doctor he's been writing a few times, Benjamin Rush, and, and then himself about 
uh, kind of an objective reading of, of, of Jesus's morality, right? If you were just to pull out, so he says, let's pull out the Godhead question. Is he a Godhead or not? We can't, we're not going to talk about that. Let's just look at him as a moral teacher and compare his morality to that of Socrates or others. I think Socrates is the main one he compares him to. Maybe some of the Greeks, right? But this is kind of reminds me of, of what some historians called the Axial Age, right? So the Axial Age is this idea that, that that period from like the Buddha to Jesus, it's kind of a period, you know, it's a huge period of time, but it, it's all kind of in the Bronze Age, right? And that across the world from China, you have Confucius, you have Buddha in India, and you have the Greek philosophers, you have Jesus, Zoroaster, all kind of popping up in roughly the same time, even though it's a huge time period. But it's all in the Bronze Age, right? So why do they all pop up? Is it, are some ideas floating around? Is it, it's because they're all kind of coming up, is it implicit in the Bronze Age to have these questions about society and morality? Um, or is there something else going on? Um, and Jefferson's approach here is like that. It's like, let's just look, compare these thinkers and say, what do they have in common? And, you know, there's good and bad. I mean, mostly he's on the side of Jesus as a moral teacher. He doesn't, like, I don't think he says anything directly saying like, oh, that's a really bad moral teaching. He just completely de-deifies Jesus, which is, of course, refreshing to to atheists. That's one reason I think Jefferson has some attraction to, to non-theistic readers. Um, what else do we have here? We have um, the instructions to Lewis, which are just, it's like, they're rather long, four or five pages, but they, they're fairly detailed instructions of, of what Lewis should look for. Not just the Pacific, but, you know, good treatment with Indians, search the animal life, the plant life, all, all those. And then there's a couple more here on the Louisiana Purchase, it's constitutionality, which is something that was really on his mind at the end of 1803. So much so that he tried to get a constitutional amendment passed in Congress, but they didn't really go anywhere. And I guess he just decided, I don't need it. But to his credit, he did see it as a contradiction and tried to address it and, and, and thought about ways of addressing it via constitutional amendment. Well, moving right along. 1804, Jefferson is reelected, of course, at the end of 1804. Uh, overwhelming um, victory. This year, though, also Mary Jefferson dies, and that's his daughter. Um, I don't think he's the only president who lost a, a child while in office, but I'm sure there weren't that many. Um, if anyone knows others, did, did Lincoln lose one of his children while he was president? He might have. I mean, in the old days, you know, people died of disease more often. Um, but he gets a letter from Abigail Adams, which is a condolences kind of letter. And he writes back to Abigail Adams and thanking her for all that. And then he almost immediately gets into politics again. And, and, and I don't know if Abigail Adams wrote something to him that triggered him, but it's just shocking to me that in a letter about his, you know, in a response to a letter about his dead daughter, Jefferson feels the need to, to pick on John Adams again. And there's one thing that really stuck in his craw, and that was that that Adams, like, you know, had all these appointments late in his, during the lame duck session, right, to prevent Jefferson from flooding government with all these Republicans. And then these were people he had to work with and work around in his, in his presidency. And he was really bothered by that. And he brought it up in this letter. And I just think it's, he just comes off as so triggered here that it, it's almost a bit disturbing. I, 
I don't know. I'd really have to look up Abigail Adams' letter if it exists to see what he actually actually said to him because he seems she said something that that he felt he needed to justify why he can't really com- converse with John Adams anymore. And it would be another eight years before he writes John Adams' uh, a letter. Now, as for 1804, um, oh yeah, there's uh, a little bit more on, in, in terms of the letters, there's a few more here that deal with Louisiana. And actually a couple are kind of interesting because they were written, I think, within a month of each other. And they both talk about Thomas Malthus. So it seems Jefferson read Thomas Malthus at this time. Now, Thomas Malthus, of course, is this British theologian who argued that population will increase exponentially, but resources will will not. So eventually you're going to have a crisis in which there's not enough resources to go around. So the policy response to this is don't do anything to help the poor because that will only encourage them to have more kids. So that's that's the Malthusian pessimism. But in the first letter, he just mentions Louisiana and then he mentions Malthus. In the second letter, though, he combines them. So it's it's interesting. Like in the first letter, he thinks he's writing about Louisiana. Then he's like, period, new paragraph. Oh, did you read this book by Malthus? It's it's kind of it's it's kind of chill. And then in the letter he writes just a little bit later, he combines them and he and he says basically, well, America can be the depository for all these excess population and they can become farmers and they can become good Republicans. And so he kind of ties it to his American ideal, but he thinks America can be this safety valve or America won't have a Malthusian crisis because it has the safety valve of the frontier. And lucky for us, we just bought, we just doubled the size of the country with this Louisiana purchase. So, you know, all this land is, is open for us. Um, he also wrote a letter to a guy, John Tyler on freedom of the press, where he defends freedom of the press, despite being picked on by the, those newspapers for, you know, we can imagine him thinking about what they are saying about Sally Hemings. Um, but I really want to, to take a closer look at this, um, this letter to Abigail Adams. So as you expect, he, he writes with, you know, thanks for your condolences kind of thing. And then he, he gets pretty quickly to the issue of his friendship with John Adams. He says, the friendship with you have honored me has ever been valued and fully reciprocated. And although events have been passing, which might be trying trying to some minds, I never believed yours to be of that kind, nor felt that was my own was that my own was. Neither my estimate of your character nor the esteem founded in that have been lessened for a single moment. Although doubts whether it would have been acceptable may have forbidden manifestation of it. Mister Adams' friendship and mine began at an earlier date, accompanying us through these important scenes. And then he talks about how they were good friends during the Revolutionary Crisis and early, you know, in, through the 80, 1780s. But then he really can't get this out of his mind. Um, he says, I did consider his last appointment to office as personally unkind. These were not among my most ardent political, these were from my most ardent political enemies from whom no faithful cooperation could ever be expected and laid me under the embarrassment of acting through men whose views were to defeat mine or to encounter the odium of putting others in their place. It seemed but common justice to leave a successor free to act by instruments of his own choice. If my respect for him did not permit me to ascribe the whole blame to the influence of others, it left something for friendship to forgive. And after brooding over for a little time, and not always resisting the expression of it, I forgave it cordially. Having come into life a little later than Mr. Adams, his career preceded mine, as mine is followed by some others, and it will probably be closed at the same distance after him, which time originally placed between us. 
and Gordon. And then he kind of says, "Well, I would like to still be friends with 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 John Adams." But of course, he's not going to write him for another another eight years, and uh, the breach is not cured at this point, anyways. Um, all right, eighteen oh five. So Sally gives birth to to uh, another child, um, James. Um, so we could see. I guess he's spending a lot of time in Monticello. I guess it's not far from Washington. By this point, Washington's the capital, right? He's the first to spend his whole presidency in Washington. Not far from Monticello, so he has a lot of time to go back home. Uh, so there's a, a few children born during his, for his, his presidency. It's also the, the, the year that we see the end of the Mediterranean campaign against these Barbary pirates. Um, and then just jumping ahead to 1806, uh, that's when he finally issues forth a policy that's going to deal with this question of how do we manage relations with these European powers that are at war. Right. He had wanted peace. He had wanted some kind of free trade agreement, but that became less and less possible with impressment, with British seizing American ships and searching them, and all you know the other way around. So, it be, so eventually, the Non-Importation Act was the response to this, uh, which was kind of a moderate law compared to what would come later, but it did begin kind of a, a sort of a trade war with Europe. He also, in this year, calls for an amendment that allows internal improvements. And, and here we really see a, a, a step forward into a much more aggressive interventionist federal government. Um, now, still, Jefferson believes it has to be justified. It has to be in the Constitution as an enumerated power. That's why he wants an amendment. But again, he doesn't really push it. And when he can't get that amendment passed, he just sort of lets it go. And, you know, you know they're, they're going to fund internal improvements um, again not not directly an enumerated power in the in the constitution but um, he doesn't really talk too much about that in his letters but that's going to be something that carries on throughout the especially the the madison years is where there's more of this movement towards a market you know economy in the different regions of the united states movement west is going to require good roads and canals and eventually railroads and all that so um, that's like his life up through um, 1806. As for letters, um, not too many more important letters, I think, um, from 1805 and 1806. He, he's still talking about the university, and so we got some more of his plans for the University of Virginia. Uh, again, very, very detailed plans. It's, it's, it actually shocks me just how much he was involved in the nitty-gritty of, of those plans. And it's not surprising that it was so important to him that he put it on his gravestone. That's one of his great achievements. Um, he also has some a bunch of news uh, about Meriwether Lewis's return and his expedition, in which he shares with other people. Uh, he does write a letter to Alexander, the Tsar of Russia, where he encourages uh, Russia to be a better broker for peace in Europe and not a not a belligerent. But I suppose that doesn't that doesn't go anywhere in 1806 in the depths of the Napoleonic Wars. So, um, yeah, that takes us through most of Jefferson's presidency. Uh, in the next episode, we'll, I'll, I'll keep going through. We're, we're over halfway through these letters already. And um, three more to go, three more episodes to go. Um, the next one will cover uh, 1807 to, to 1812. So we'll, we'll go through the rest of his presidency and then get to his retirement. And, of course, the main thing he's going to do after his retirement is going to be the University of Virginia. So I'll probably have a lot more to say about that, but I'm also interested in, in what he says on various political issues, on his observations of the war, 
the War of 1812, that is, um, and what he says about slavery later in his life and, and all these different things. So we're going to look closely at, at, at how his ideas evolve in the last you know, 20 years of his life. But those are going to be his retirement years, so um, not so much in the public eye, perhaps, as, as he was before 1808, 1809. So anyway, that does it. If you have your own thoughts about, you know, do you see Jefferson's presidency as kind of a, a, a failed revolution in that he kind of had to make peace with a more interventionist federal government uh, through things like the Louisiana Purchase and Internal Improvements and the Non-Importation Act and later the Embargo Act, um, or you not see it this way. I mean, how do you think Jefferson handled his presidency and his, his life in, in, in the public eye? Um, let me know what you think. And if you've read any of these letters, uh, give your own thoughts about it. So you can send me an email or, or just leave your comments below for everyone to see. Um, in the next episode, we'll just continue on through with Jefferson letters, Jefferson's letters. Um, I look forward to talking about some more of them with you. I've been having a lot of fun with this, this, collection um it's a really good one it's um it's it's a really bulky collection it's 1500 pages but the good news is, is it's kind of worth it I, I can't imagine you'd ever need another anthology of jefferson's writings i mean maybe if you're a jefferson scholar and you need everything this wouldn't do but for the lay casual person interested in early american politics this this is really a great collection um so um, that does it for now. I'll, I'll see you next time when we continue on through uh, Jefferson's uh, career and his his letters. Thanks, as always, for listening.